in his place. Shaul died, and Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, died, and Hadar reigned in his place. The name of his city being Pau. His wife's name was Mahedabel, the daughter of Matrib, daughter of Mezahab. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau according to their clans and their dwelling places. By their names, the chiefs Timna, Alba, Jephthah, Oholibama, Elah, Pinan, Kenaz, Teman, Mibzar, Magdiel, and Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. The word of God, you may be seated. Now, I imagine you might have some questions right about now. First question might be, did you really pronounce all those names accurately? <laughs> well, let me answer that question for you. Yes. Absolutely. You know why? Because there's a secret to pronouncing Old Testament names. You know how you pronounce them? Confidently. <laughs> you look at it, I think it sounds like this, and then you just go for it. Okay? And the reality is, no one really knows, so you look like a Hebrew scholar up here when you do that. Okay? So it's kind of like fake it till you make it type of thing. But the second question that you may be thinking at this point is, what in the world is he going to do with this text? What are we going to talk about for the next 30 to 40 minutes? Which I think is actually a, a very good question. So, uh, anybody got any thoughts? <laughs> I got nothing. These are all blanks. No, I'm kidding. But if I didn't know better, though, I think there might be a little bit of a conspiracy going on here, maybe between Pastor Mike and Pastor Ben. You know, they go down to Franco's for lunch all the time, and they're probably talking about, you know, the preaching schedule, and they're like, hey, uh, have you seen Genesis 36? I don't want to preach that text. Yeah, me neither. What can we do? Hmm, I know. Let's give it to Bongo. Let's give it to him. Let's call him out the bullpen. We'll give it to Mikey. He likes it. That is a very dated reference there. It shows how old I am. If you laughed, you're old too. So I'm not sure what I did to get on these guys' bad side, but I must have done something. Now, in reality, you know what? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says this. All scripture, all of it, is breathed out by God and is profitable. It's beneficial for a few things. The first on the list, teaching. Teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So is Genesis 36 scripture? Yes. You bet it is. So if God's word is true, and it is, and there's something in this text for us. There's something to learn here. And the question is, what is it? Well, the first point I want to make is, we read that in its entirety intentionally. I wanted to do that. Because that's kind of how it's like when you're reading your Bible. You sit down, you say, I'm going to read the Bible cover to cover. Well, where do you start? 
You start in Genesis, right there. And, and you set out on this journey, right? And immediately it's exciting. Wow, creation. God has spoken things into existence. He is amazing. And you, and you kind of study Genesis 1 and 2 and try to figure out if these, you know, literal six 24-hour days, am I a young earth guy or an old earth girl or whatever, you know, like, and, you, and, it's, and it's captivating. Then sin comes in, chapter 3, the drama begins, leads to Noah's flood. Then you have everything that goes on up until the Tower of Babel, the calling of Abram. God now begins to draw people to himself. We see God at work at what he's doing, drawing uh, Abraham, the father of our faith. Then you got the drama with, with Isaac on the altar. And then his boys, Jacob and Esau, and the sibling rivalry that existed between the two of them, and the, kind of the cat and mouse game that we've looked at in the last you know, few weeks. But then you get to Genesis 36. And you see, this is a genealogy. And we had one earlier in Genesis. And the tendency might be, I don't need to concern myself with this. Just turn the page. Because this, you know, this isn't even the genealogy of the godly line. You know, at least with those genealogies, you know, you kind of trace it back from Jesus and, and look and see, oh, hey, look, you know, there's Rahab in there. And it's kind of interesting. These guys are pagans. So you might say, I just want to turn the page. I, I want to get out of the, you know, the Edomite phone book, basically. Move on to Joseph. Chapter 37 and following, I, I hope you are planning on coming back to living water. I am very excited. I love the life of Joseph. And, and I can't wait, frankly, to, to examine that again. And, you know, that, we're back to the, to the, the godly line, Jacob's children here. And, and if you know anything about Joseph's life, this has got all the makings of, of a 48 hours or dateline mystery that we would watch on TV. Right? It's got... Family rivalries, jealousy, betrayal, attempted murder, deception, sexual temptation, concealed identity, all that. And so the tendency is, can't we just close the book on Esau and let's get to the juicy stuff? Well, I'm saying no, because God put this in here for a reason. And we're going to read it, and we're going to talk about it, and we're going to ask, what can we learn? That should be our question. So let's start here. I have a, a sneaky suspicion that you might have gotten lost a little bit there as I rattled off a whole bunch of names and it was just a, it was just a big blur. You don't know what happened for the last five minutes, okay? If that's the case, let me help provide a little structure to the passage because it does actually break down quite nicely here. And if we do this, then I think we might have a better understanding from which to work with. So verses 9 through 14 begin with the genealogy of Esau. Esau, the twin brother of Jacob. Okay, this is after he left uh, Jacob and moved to the hill country of Seir. And what we're, what we're seeing here is we're seeing the beginning of a nation. This is the nation of Edom coming into picture, really. And the people who live in Edom are known as the Edomites. So Esau starts out, he has five children by three different women. Minimum. So we have the children of Esau and his grandchildren in these verses. Verses 15 through 19 
Now, this portion here, God begins to bless the nation of Edom. We learned last week that, that God's common grace that Pastor Mike introduced to us is, is blessing the people. He, even though they're the ungodly people, there are blessings for them. And that's what common grace is. It's the grace that God gives to all people, regardless whether they love him or hate him. Good things like sunshine, rain, good food, family, friends, the pleasures in this life that we all enjoy. Every single person on this planet, Christian, non-Christian, atheist, Muslim, they are all benefiting from God's common grace because it's a reflection of who he is. It's an outworking of his character and his nature. He is good. He can't help but being good to his creation. Even if they don't appreciate it and say thank you, he still is good. So God actually blesses the ungodly people of Edom. And he said he would. He told Rebecca, he says, there's two nations in your womb. It wasn't all about the nation of Israel. It's all about Jacob. No, there's two nations, Jacob, Esau. Both boys would be forefathers of thriving nations. Jacob over Israel, right, and by virtue of God's blessing, and then Esau uh, forming Edom by virtue of God's common and this is also stated very clearly in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 11 says that by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. See, Esau, he got what he wanted. He wanted the earthly blessings. He wanted the here and now. Things like land and children and possessions and wealth and women and power and rule and authority. God gave it to him. This is the classic, be careful what you ask for, because you might just get it. But then the New Testament tells us that, that God's common grace, the kindness of God that he extends to all people is designed to do something. It's supposed, you're supposed to react and respond to this kindness, and that is repentance. You, you respond to God's kindness with repentance. That's what it should move you towards. But that's not what happened with Esau and the Edomites. They remained stiff-necked people. And you can see as history begins to unfold, you got the nation of Israel and the nation of Edom just buttonheads. They're arch rivals all throughout history. And yet you see the nation of Edom here coming into form. They begin to organize themselves. They're prosperous. They, they get these different tribes and clans together, and then people would, would uh, appoint leaders known as chiefs uh, over these clans. <coughs> if you have a King James Version, they're referred to as dukes. So this is what we see in verses 15 through 19. Verses 20 through 30 begin with, uh, these are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land. So now we have Edomites and we have Horites. Who are the Horites? The Horites existed in the land prior to Esau and his crew hitting the scene. Okay, they come, they, the, the Horites are there, and they would, they would intermarry. Okay, so they came together, but the Horites would, would then fall under the rule of Edom. And the Horites, though, also began to organize themselves and form tribes and clans and appoint chiefs. And we're seeing the nation come into being. Verses 31 through 39 now, not only is the nation growing, 
But now they've appointed kings prior to Israel having kings. Okay, the verse we looked at, verse 31, and we see the, the names of the kings listed there. And lastly, verses 40 through 43 present to us another set of chiefs according to their clans. So that's kind of the, the structure there. That's the layout. So the question still remains, what are we going to do with this? What are we going to do, do with it as a whole? Well, as I kept reading this over and over, and I'm trying to think, how in the world do you preach this? I kept coming back to one thought. Let me share it with you. It's this. You're going to die. <laughs> That's it. That concludes our service. <laughs> we bless you and dismiss you. No, you are going to die. Now, for the technical people here, I, I have accounted for you. Let me amend this slightly, okay? Unless Jesus returns in your lifetime, you're going to die. So either you're going to him or he's coming to you. But either way, our time on this earth, as we know it, is coming to an end someday. And that's one thing that we share with every single person on that list there. Think about it. They were all born, they lived, and they died. Well, we have two out of the three, okay? You've been born, right? You're living right now. Everybody's still alive. You're living, but you're going to die someday. And I can just hear, you know, Mike, uh, you know what kind of week I've had? I've, I've had a really rough week. You know, I come to church. I, I'm looking for a little, you know, Something inspirational, uplifting, maybe some, you know, encouragement, you know? And, and, and you read a long list of people who I don't know or care about. Then you tell me, just like them, I'm going to die. That's right. That's exactly right. But I'm not telling you anything that you don't already know. You, you knew this coming in, right? This isn't new information. Just think of this as your uh, friendly death reminder. Okay? Now you might think I want to talk about death, but I actually don't want to talk about death as much as I want to talk about life. Okay? And to do that, I want to use a metaphor. Okay? I want to compare life to a treadmill. Okay? What happens on a treadmill? A lot of activity on a treadmill, right? A lot of movement, a lot of motion, things are wiggling and jiggling, energy's being spent. Sweat coming down. All this energy is being exerted. But in reality, though, there really isn't any progress being made on the treadmill. Sure, you're giving your body a workout, but you ain't going anywhere, right? You say, I ran five miles. No, you didn't. Stop lying. Five miles is a distance. You didn't leave that little area there. And life is sort of like that. From our birthday to our death day, we are really busy. We got a lot going on, and we're running. But is anything really being accomplished in any ultimate sense? Does all our work and effort yield results that will endure and last beyond the immediate future? See, motion doesn't always lead to progress. Right? Movement, we ought not confuse movement with advancement. Sometimes you're just running in 
place. It seems to me that we get on the treadmill of life and we're running and we're running and we're running until one day what? We collapse. We collapse, that's death. You get spit out the back end of the treadmill and it just keeps on rolling. That's life here under the sun. You know what happens? The next generation comes along and they say, well, look, a treadmill. And they get on. And they start running. And, oh, man, we're busy. We're doing something. We're making a difference. We're going somewhere. No, you're not. You're going to end up just like the generation before, at the back of the treadmill. So as the generations go by, what happens? You've got this big old pile of bodies back here. But we're not concerned about that. Why? Because we're on the treadmill right now. We're too busy running. But the, the reality is our fate is the same as them. People we don't care about. And upon our collapse, new people get on, and that's how they'll view us. This is life here under the sun as the treadmill of life just rolls on. Thanks, Sam. Mike, you're still depressing. <laughs> I know. But this isn't my view, actually. I'm not presenting my view here. I'm giving you Bible. This is actually in the Bible. Have you ever read the book of Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes is awesome. I, I think it's my favorite book now. I've been in it over the summer. I did a little study with a young man here at church. Twelve chapters, you can read it in one sitting. It's one of those things, like a good song, like you guys know I like rap music. A good rap song, like you pick out a lyric, they're like, ooh, I didn't even catch that metaphor, or that thing he did there. And you, you, you've listened to the song 20 times, and you catch that on the 21st time. Ecclesiastes is like that. You read through it and you're like, oh wow, there's something there I've never seen before. It's fascinating. I love the book. It's, it's so cynical and, and, and depressing, and, but it's so true. That's what I love about it. It tells it like it is. So let's, let's dip into Ecclesiastes here for a minute. When you think of the book, I bet you you think of the phrase, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Right? Or vanity, vanity. All is vanity. The Hebrew word there that's translated, gets translated meaningless or vanity is the word hevel. Hevel. Very interesting word. It means uh, vapor or smoke. And this is a common theme we see in Scripture, in the Psalms, and in the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And it often compares our life here on this earth, right now, life under the sun, as uh, vapor or smoke. And there's a couple things that are going on there. One is, think about smoke. Smoke is, is, is kind of, it's kind of mysterious. You know, it, it doesn't take a, a regular shape. It just kind of moves about, right? And, and so you can't really understand it. Once you think it's, you've pictured it, then it moves. And, and if you try to reach out and grab it, you can't, right? I mean, it just, it just slips through your fingertips. And life is like that. It's really hard. Once you think you've got it figured out, everything changes. And you're like, I, I got nothing here, right? And before you know it, that smoke, it's gone. Where did it go? It's, it's into the atmosphere. It was here, then it's gone. And that's how the Bible describes our lives. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, 
I want to read here from the NIV. It just, it just comes through a little clearer. Verses 3 and 4. What do people gain from all their labors in which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. Verse 11. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. There it is. Bleak, right? What do you know about your great-grandfather or your great-great-grandfather? Probably not much, right? What do you know about my great-grandfather? I mean, at least your great-grandfather, that's your ancestor. What do you know about my great-grandfather? I can guarantee you, you know nothing, because I know nothing, okay? I couldn't even give you his name, let alone tell you anything about him. And I'm only a few generations removed from him. couldn't even tell you his name. He is completely forgotten. And the truth is, I could find out if I wanted to. You know I could. Ancestry.com, baby. Shell out a few bucks. I could find out about great grandpa Bongo if I wanted to. But I have not done that. Why? Well, you know why. I don't care. <laughs> I, I feel a little conviction. I, I feel like I should, but I'm a realist, okay? I just tell you like it is. I mean, I just, I'm being honest. I don't care. Otherwise, I would have found out if I did. I'm on the internet all the time doing all kinds of things. Never went to Ancestry.com and whatever it is you got to do, get the blood done or pee in a cup or whatever it is they need, I haven't bothered because I don't care. And, and I, my mom would just hate this sermon, by the way. She's like, like, Michael, you care nothing about our heritage. I'm like, I can't argue with you. <laughs> well, I mean, everything I hear is, well, like, you like to drink. You know, great. You know, that's something to hang your hat on. Like, you know, I just, I'm too busy. I'm on the treadmill. I'm running, baby. I don't, I don't have time to look back there. But the reality is, you know what? I'm going to the same place. I'm going to the grave as well. Right? We, we tend to think that, that we're so important. We, we will be remembered. People are going to care about us. They're going to care about me 100 years from now. Ecclesiastes says, no, they won't. You'd be lucky if your name is remembered, frankly. So I think that's what we're thinking about as we look at this long list of Esau's descendants. Who cares about these people? Who cares? They're irrelevant to me. Let, let's pick somebody. I want to make this personal. Well, let's pick uh, Mibzar. He's at the end of verse 42. What do we know about Mibzar? Next to nothing. Okay? We know he's a man created in God's image. Right? That he's a descendant of Esau and that he was a, a chief in one of the clans of Edom. That's all we got. Yet we think we're way more important than Mibzar. We do. Well, I'll tell you this. Mibzar made it into the Bible. Okay? Are you in the Bible? I'm not in the Bible. That's something to hang your hat on. Put that on the tombstone. Hey, I'm in the Bible. Check me out, Genesis 36, 42, right? But I know you don't care about Mibzar, but I hate to break it to you. He's way more important than you and me. 
His name is being spoke of here today in 2019, thousands of years after he lived. Every time this text is, is read and preached, he's being spoke of. And again, the first Chronicles chapter one. You know, you're gonna get this list again as you make your way through cover to cover. Get ready, it's coming again. First Chronicles chapter one. Your name is not gonna be remembered thousands of years from now. I think it's safe to say that. Unless you do something really, really horrific. Okay? <laughs> like you and Hitler. Okay? But I saw a video of a guy going to college campuses asking 19, 20-year-old students, who's Adolf Hitler? And like, Adolf Hitler? Sounds familiar. I don't know. It's out there. YouTube it. <laughs> Just like Mizar, you're going to die. That Hitler thing, that case in point right there. And will you be remembered? Ecclesiastes says no. So, now that I've so damaged your self-esteem, and we're all depressed, what do we do with this? Well, here's my conclusion. My conclusion is this. Because it's true that you're going to die, live according to your profession. What I mean by that is not live according to your job, okay? Your profession of faith. If you profess to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then live like it. That's what I'm saying. You might say to me, well, Mike, I do, or at least I, at least I try to. You know, I, I pay my taxes. Uh, I love my spouse. I'm faithful to them. Uh, I love my kids. I teach them right from wrong. I work hard at the job. I, I show up early. I, show, I stay late. I bring donuts to the office. I'm a good neighbor. I smile and wave as people go by. Even the strangers. I, I'll hold the door for them as we go into Dollar Tree. I'm always saying thank you to the clerk. I, Mike, I'm trying to live the Christian life. Well, I hate to burst your bubble, but I don't think that's the Christian life. Nothing I said there is distinctly Christian. Those are, those are things that are fine and good, and we, we ought to be doing those. Those ought to be a given, right? Let me borrow a phrase that the Lord Jesus spoke. He said, don't even the pagans do those things? They do. They do. Unbelievers, they pay their taxes on time. Not every unbeliever is out cheating on his wife. They, they raise their kids right. They're, they're good employees. They're friendly people. But Christian, you and I, we are called to a much higher standard. And I think sometimes we equate Christianity with niceness. Well, he must be a Christian. He's nice. That is a faulty conclusion to draw. Christians should be nice people, don't get me wrong, but not all nice people are Christians. Remember our doctrine of common grace, right? All of those things that I just listed, all of them can be done apart from uh, God's, you know, the, the saving faith that you need. And Christians don't need to do those things. They can all be done by virtue of common grace. The ungodly can do those things. And this passage uh, that, that most clearly articulates that I think we covered it last week was Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus said this. He said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Loving your enemies, that is a distinctly Christian virtue. The world knows nothing of that. 
so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And here's the doctrine of common grace. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Some translations are pagans or, or unbelievers. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, yes, God's common grace is the blessings that he provides to all people. Sunshine, rain, good food. But it's not limited to those things. There's other functions as well. Okay, Something that theologians call an outward good or civil righteousness. Let me explain that. What that means is that God is actively at work in the life of the unbeliever to bring about good that will be used for the benefit of society as a whole. This is what allowed the Edomites to procreate, to grow, to build, to organize, to establish government, to set up laws, and actually obey said laws, even though they lived in opposition to God. See, by worldly standards, other nations could look at Edom and say, look at Edom. They're doing great. Look at them thriving, organizing, building, growing. So, again, let's make this personal. Let, let's, let's bring back our buddy Mibzar. All right? I'll bet you anything, Mibzar thought himself to be a pretty good guy. That's kind of the human condition. We think we're pretty good. I mean, after all, he's a leader. He's a leader in Edom. He must have brought something to the table. You know, he couldn't have been a complete slouch. I mean, he had some leadership capabilities such that they would appoint him as a leader. So I bet he did pay his taxes. I bet he did work hard. I bet he took care of his home. He loved his wife. He was Coach Mibzar on the Little League team there for his boy, right? The world would look at Mibzar and say, great guy. Look at him. But if he has rejected the true and living God, his entire life and all the, quote, good that he has done, all for nothing. It's disappeared. Poof. Like smoke. And it's gone. And he's gone. He's wasted his life because he didn't get the full meaning of life. And I said earlier that we will all die like nymphs are. But there's a missing piece of information that I have yet to share. So far, I've been speaking about life here under the sun. I'm borrowing that phrase from Ecclesiastes. And what is meant by under the sun? Well, it's it's the, the notion there is it's purely the physical realm. It's like world without God, if you will. Kind of like an atheistic view. And so according to atheistic or naturalist perspectives, there is no difference between you and Mibzar. You're both dead at the back end of the treadmill when it's all said and done. However, we don't live life under the sun. S-U-N. Right? We, you and I, Christian, we live life under the Son, S-O-N, under the Lordship of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, changes everything. That's a game changer right there. That's the big difference between you and this long list of dead Edomites. If death is the great equalizer, then Jesus is the great game changer. 
That's the reality. Because for the Christian, when, when you're running on the treadmill, you collapse. Guess what, Christian? Jesus is in the back, arms open wide, ready to catch you and receive you and bring you into his presence. That's the good news. See, we have embraced the God who Mibzar has rejected by faith. We believe in the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, Jesus says, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And that is my question for you here today. Do you believe that? If so, that is a total game changer. Changes everything. See, that's something that can't be pr produced uh, through God's common grace. That is distinctly Christian. Saving faith in God that works itself out in love and leads to a transformed life. Our world cannot account for that. They can go through AA and clean up and, and stay sober, but that, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm, so, I'm talking about something deep. I'm talking about a whole life upended, radical transformation. That's God territory, and that's what he does. That is distinctly Christian. And my question to you is, have you had that? Does that describe you? Okay? Or are you just a pretty good person? Because pretty good people go to hell. You must be born again. And that's what this all comes down to. That's what this passage is all about. It's like every other passage. It's about Jesus. This sermon, just like every sermon, it's about Jesus. He's the difference maker. But the point is, you should not spend your time trying to make your name great in this life. It won't be. It will be forgotten. Okay? You know where you want your name recorded? Not in the annals of, annals of history. You want it in the Lamb's Book of Life. If it's found there, it's not etched out. It can't be erased. It's in there, and it'll be there for all eternity as a trophy of God's grace. And that is my